morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us in worship this morning at Faith Community United Methodist Church. Welcome to those of you worshiping with us online. We're glad that you have joined us for worship as well, and I pray that we will all be blessed in this time of worship. If you would please uh, find the attendance pads that are in the pews and pass those out, uh, uh, fill those out, pass them along to those worshiping with you this morning. Uh, I would just uh, remind you, of course, that uh, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. The office will be closed. There is a community worship service uh, at Zion Baptist Church, and the men of faith are going to be viewing that service online here at Faith Community. You're welcome to join them for that uh, at 7 o'clock, and uh, you're also welcome to go in person to the Martin Luther King Jr. service uh, at 7 o'clock at Zion Baptist Church on East Main Street. We are together uh, to worship our God this morning, so let us be in an attitude of worship, and I invite you to stand as you're able for the call to worship. With steadfast love, God calls our names. Come to find refuge in the shelter of God's ways. Feast on the abundance of God's house. Come to drink deeply from the fountain of life. We are ready to hear the word of God. We want to be guided by Reach out to claim the gifts God pours out on us. The Spirit is eager to inspire and empower each one. And please remain standing for our opening hymn, How Firm a Foundation.
seated. And please use your bulletins to join in our opening prayer in unison. How awesome it is that you care for us, God of all life. Your delight in us brings out our best. When you rejoice in us, we come to believe in our capacity for goodness. When your light and salvation dawn in our lives, we want to share the joy. Remind us now of the gifts you so freely bestow. Help us to recognize them in ourselves and in one another, that we may use them to serve people in need and to give glory to your name. Amen. And next is our prayer hymn, Be Still My Soul. You may remain seated.
this time of stillness, let us pause for a time of silent prayer. Lord, you have given us this place and this time as a gift, a gift of peace and quiet to calm our souls, to sit humbly in your presence, to feel your presence and your loving arms around us, to know that we are not alone in this world, but that our Creator, our Father, is with us carrying us along. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of worship, for the gift of your church, being with your people, your community of faith, where we can build one another up in the truth of the gospel, in your claim upon our lives. Help us as we gently and lovingly correct one another, as we seek together to follow that path that you have laid before us. Lord, we pray not just for ourselves here, but for our community and for our country. As we celebrate this Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, may we be reminded of the legacy that he passed on, of concern for all people. And may we truly live by that legacy to acknowledge when we and our country fall short and to live up to the promise, the promise that you have given to us if we will but be faithful to you. Remind us not to protect our own privileges, but to use our privileges for the benefit of others, to build all people up. Remind us of of your command to be concerned and servants of the poor, the dispossessed, the oppressed, to be your agents of peace and redemption. And Lord, we pray for your redemption for us and for all people, for that salvation that comes only from your Son, Jesus Christ. May we live in that promise and we, may we share that promise with others until all come to the truth of your gospel in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious and holy name as we offer to you now the prayer that he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. During this time, as the ushers wait upon us, let us present ourselves to God through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
Please join me in the prayer of dedication. Gracious God, whose miracles surround us day by day, and whose revelation in Jesus Christ awakens our wonder, let this be an hour of powerful encounter with you in which our gifts are called forth for the sake of your church and for the transformation of your world. Work within us, among us, and through us, we pray, that believing minds may blossom into trusting hearts and helping hands, fully committed to your service. Amen. Please be seated.
Now we've got it. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful is what I said. Our scripture lesson today comes from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical deficit, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Alex Haley's novel, Roots, which was made into a television miniseries a couple of times, follows the story of an African man brought to America as a slave during the antebellum days of this country. The man's name is Kunta Kinte. However, when he is sold into slavery, his master decides to give him an English name, Toby. In a dramatic and very difficult-to-watch scene, Kunta is strapped to the whipping post and is beaten into accepting the name given him by his oppressor. The overseer stands with his whip at the ready and demands, What is your name? Kunta is the answer, at which point Kinte receives a violent lashing. Over and over again, the pattern repeats. Each time he is told his name is Toby. Each time Kunta insists on claiming his African name. Each time he is violently whipped. In the 2016 version, the overseer yells at Kunta that he is nothing but property and he needs to accept his new name to show that he understands his place. As he lashes him harder and harder, he sneers, say your name so you know what you are. The scene is one that was repeated in real life countless times in the shameful history of this nation. As humans were possessed by other humans, their identity stripped away, their humanity destroyed. It was a common practice, both in the United States and in situations of slavery wherever it happened in the history of the world, that slaves were given new names when taken into captivity to strip them of their former identity. If you take away a man's name, you make him more subject to the ruling authorities. Chapter 1 of Daniel tells about four Jewish men who were taken into captivity during the exile to Babylon. These men were, in effect, slaves. These slaves did not, for the most part, face the same 
violent degradation as the slaves of early America. In many cases, these exiles were able to hold quite comfortable positions in their captivity, as is the case with these four men in Daniel 1. But they were captives nonetheless. So it should come as no surprise that one of the first things we're told about them is that they were given new names. The names that these four men had were significant. Their names had to do with their identity as God's people. The first, Daniel, means God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. Mishael means something like who is as God is. Azariah means either the Lord helps or servant of the Lord. Jewish names proclaiming their dedication to the God of Israel. That's not going to fly with their Babylonian overlords who want to strip them of their former identity as the people of the Jewish God and incorporate them as subjects of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian gods. Daniel starts off this book by, by setting the story in the third year of King Jehoiakim. And he says that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged Jerusalem. There's all kinds of scholarly debate about the historicity of this book, starting right here in the first verse. In the third year of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar had not yet become king of Babylon. His father was still king. Nebuchadnezzar would ascend to the throne the following year. Furthermore, other parts of the Bible indicate that Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in Jehoiakim's fourth year and carried Jehoiakim away in in the eleventh year of Jehoiakim's reign, not the third. Different scholars differ. deal with these discrepancies in different ways. From the reading and and the research that that I've been doing, I'm convinced that most of these supposed discrepancies are are based on false or or baseless assumptions and that the book of Daniel can, in fact, be taken at face value. At the beginning of the book, Daniel is describing the very beginning of the exile to Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and, and carried away a century and a half earlier by the Assyrians. Now that same fate was finally coming to the southern tribe of Judah at the hands of Babylon. In this first attack against Jerusalem, and there would be several others, and the same thing would be done each time, Nebuchadnezzar brought some of the high officials from Judah into Babylon, and he took some of the vessels from the temple. Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar placed these holy vessels in the treasury of his gods, the gods of Babylonia. Since the Jews did not have graven images of God, that's one of the Ten Commandments, no carved or man-made idols, there was no physical God for the king to capture, so instead Nebuchadnezzar took the vessels from the temple that that would stand in representation of God, and he placed those vessels in in his own temple, in a place of subordination to his gods, a sign that his gods were dominant, that, that the God of the Jews had been conquered and captured that he was now, that, that God was now subservient to the Babylonian gods. Daniel emphasizes the hubris of all of this in verse 2 when he says, these he brought to the land of Shinar. Shinar was another name for Babylon, but by using that ancient name, Daniel is drawing a, a direct connection between his own day and the story of the Tower of Babel, a tower that was built according to Genesis 11, in the land of Shinar. Daniel is basically saying, look, this is taking place in the same place where the people of antiquity tried to build a tower into heaven, and these people are just as arrogant as they were back then. They still think 
that they can take control over God. Nebuchadnezzar exemplified this hubris with the people that he carried away. They, they had names proclaiming their devotion to the Jewish God. Now he would give them new names related to the gods of Babylon. Their new names would proclaim a new identity for them. There's not a clear consensus among scholars as to what exactly each of these new names means, but there's no doubt that they all are Babylonian names containing references to the gods of Babylon. Daniel is renamed Belteshazzar, which means either Bel's treasure or Bel protects his life. However you translate it, the name is clearly an homage to Bel, also known as Marduk, the supreme god of Babylon. God is my judge becomes the treasure of Bel. Hananiah is given the name Shadrach. Shadrach could refer to the sun, which was worshipped as king of the world, or it could mean command of Aku, Aku being the name of a Sumerian moon god. Mishael, meaning who is as God is, is changed to Meshach, meaning who is as Aku is. Again, a reference to the Sumerian moon god. Or it could mean who belongs to Shaka, the goddess of pleasure. Finally, Abednego, servant of Nego. Nego is the fire god, a pagan god Nebu. Once this Jewish man had been Azariah, servant of the Lord, but according to his captors, he would from then on be called servant of a pagan god. Obviously, these are names that none of these faithful men would have claimed for themselves. When you realize what these names mean, what they represent, it's clear that these Jewish men would have been repulsed, offended by names celebrating false gods. Given how they felt about these names, though, there isn't any indication that any of these four men rebelled against them. Certainly they objected to themselves. There must have been a part of them that seethed on the inside any time they were addressed by these blasphemous names. But they didn't choose to fight that battle. Why? I suspect it's because they knew within themselves who they truly were, and that was enough. They knew in their hearts that these gods by whose names they were now being called were nothing, a fiction. And their relation to the one true God was what defined them. Perhaps they agreed with what Shakespeare would write centuries later in Romeo and Juliet, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. The Babylonians' intention, as it has been of captors throughout human history, was to strip their foreign servants of their foreign identity and make them into a possession. And it wasn't just with their names. Daniel says in verse 5, they were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. That three-year period... It was about much more than education. It was indoctrination, enculturation. For three years, these four men, along with so many others like them, were to be inundated with Babylonian ways and Babylonian customs and beliefs and traditions. When Daniel says, at the end of that time, they could be stationed in the king's court, What he means is that at the end of those three years, they would be so thoroughly enculturated that they would see themselves as loyal Babylonians. In that, the Babylonians failed. 
Not that these Jews were openly rebelling against the Babylonians. Far from it. They had no interest in revolt. They had no intentions to prevent the king from carrying out whatever political intentions he had in mind. They were even willing to serve him as loyal subjects. Why? Because they knew that God was still in control and that it was God, their God, the only true God who had led them into captivity in Babylon. They knew that the exile was God's punishment for centuries of apostasy, and they were willing to pay the price in faith in order to keep faith with God. But that didn't mean giving up on their Jewish identity. In fact, it meant reclaiming their Jewish identity to an even deeper extent than ever before. It meant understanding within themselves, perhaps better than the Jewish people ever had, who they truly were and to whom they truly belonged. They could allow the Babylonians to call them by other names, even by names they found offensive, because they knew that those names did not represent who they truly were. They knew who they were. They knew whose they were, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar or anyone else had to say about it. They could go along with the name change because they knew who they were. But because they knew who they were, there were some things that they simply could not go along with. Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine. Those of us for whom food is just food and drink is just drink might say to ourselves, what's the big deal? Just eat what you're given. Their rejection of the food and wine might even come across as rude and disrespectful, especially considering that these were royal rations that they were being offered. This was no prison food. This was the very same stuff that the king himself was eating. They think they're too good for that? It's not that they thought they were too good. It's that they were Jews, and as Jews, God had forbidden them from eating certain foods. And not only had God forbidden them from eating certain foods, God had decreed that eating those foods would defile them. It would make them religiously impure. Following all of the Torah, particularly following all of the food laws of the Torah, is what set them apart as holy. This is one of the main ways that they knew who they were and demonstrated to the whole world to whom they belonged. You could change their names, that didn't mean a thing. But forcing them to eat forbidden food, that would take away their identity. If they gave up on the law, they would no longer be God's people. They could go along with the name change because they knew who they were. They could not go along with the unholy food also because they knew who they were. That's the thing about knowing who you are. When you understand within yourself who you are and to whom you belong, then you know what matters and what doesn't. What you can go along with and what you can't. Where you can make peace and when you have to fight. The Torah, including all of the dietary laws that set them apart as God's people, that was worth fighting for. But rather than fighting right off the bat, Daniel decided to ask. He asked the palace master to allow them to eat only vegetables. 
then they wouldn't be defiled by any of the unholy food. And the next verse says that God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. This wasn't just the palace master deciding on his own to be a nice guy. This was the intervention of God. Daniel and his friends had demonstrated their commitment to stay true to God, and God blessed them in a way that allowed them to maintain that commitment. But the palace master was still scared. He had a job to do. He was subject to the king, just like everyone else. If if Daniel and his friends became weak because they weren't eating the same rich foods as everyone else, it was the palace master's head that would be on the line. So Daniel makes a deal with him to give them a chance, test things out. Give them 10 days on a diet of vegetables and then see how they look. 10 days would be long enough for the palace master to observe under close examination the effects of their diet, but not so long that it would have become obvious to anyone else. Nobody else would notice an inkling of a difference in them just after 10 days, but but he could test their strength and their endurance and, and see if they were beginning to weaken. If so, he could force the royal diet on them before anyone else grew wise as to what was going on. As it turned out, there was a huge difference after just 10 days, a difference bigger than the palace master could ever have imagined, and in the opposite direction. At the end of the 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had eaten the royal rations. Imagine that. They followed God's commands about what they needed and what they needed to stay away from, And what God commanded of them turned out to be more than enough. There was an assumption in the palace master's fears. And it is an assumption that still plagues humankind today. The assumption is this. If you don't do things the way everyone else is doing them, then you are going to fall behind. If you want to keep up and compete in this world, then you have to go along with the ways of the world is doing it. You may have your religious scruples, that's all well and good, but nobody that you're up against in this world does, and if you stick to those religious scruples when they have none, then you are going to be putting yourself at a severe disadvantage. That way of thinking is a falsehood. It's a lie. But it is a lie that is so easy to fall into. The Christian businessman who puts profit margin ahead of people because that's just the way the business world works. And if he doesn't do that, then his business is going to fail. Why even call himself Christian if he believes his business is going to fail by adhering to godly principles? The Christian politician who bends the truth and mercilessly attacks her opponent with misleading innuendo because that's the way you get elected in today's world. No matter how righteous her policy positions might be, God is not honored in that. And it's just simply not true anyway. If God wants her in that position, then she's going to win the election by being honest and faithful, not by bowing down to the devil. Christians today bemoan the fact that school activities and club sports have taken over Sundays a time that our society used to reserve for the church. That didn't happen on its own. It happened 
because Christian parents collectively bought into the lie that if they resisted and refused to go along with it, their children were going to miss out on some great opportunity. Imagine if 40 years ago, Christian parents had decided en masse that they were going to put God first and refuse to participate in activities that conflicted with the church. If Christians across the country had done that, if every Christian sat out a game or a practice that conflicted with church, there would be no activities that conflicted with church. But since nobody else would stick to that commitment, they all decided that neither could they. They truly believed that they had no choice in the matter. That if they didn't go along with it, their child was going to miss out on something essential. Friends, There is nothing in this world that is more essential than devotion to the living God. Is it any wonder that there is a sharp decline in religious participation among younger generations when their predecessors spent decade after decade teaching them that playing by the world's rules is more important anyway? Did anyone ever stop to wonder what more amazing things God might have in store for their child that they never imagined that they would never realize because they decided not to put God first? Did they ever stop to consider that they might be trading a miraculous blessing for a soccer game? And and don't dare say to yourself, well, that's what we should have done back then, but we didn't, and now... That's just the way it is. There's nothing we can do about it. No! That's a lie! It's been a lie all along. The idea that there's nothing you can do about it is the deception that we fall into. What you can do about it is pray to God for discernment and commit to following His lead no matter what sacrifice is involved because you believe the truth as Daniel believed the truth that you will miss out on far more by going along to get along than you will by standing your ground and being faithful to God. The palace master, he just couldn't imagine how Daniel and his friends could still be strong, as strong as everyone else, if they didn't avail themselves of the same foods as everyone else. Daniel and his friends knew Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so they committed themselves. They committed themselves to live by that standard and no other. They would avail themselves of the benefits of faithfulness to God and no other system of values that was in conflict with that. They knew who they were. They knew whose they were. They knew what mattered. They knew where their blessings would come from. Not from Babylon, but from the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. At the end of that ten days, the palace master examined them and he found them to be even larger, healthier, stronger than those who had eaten the royal rations. How was that so? Because God was their strength. How did they grow larger and stronger than those who ate what they could not? Because the Lord was their portion. Daniel chapter 1 ends by 
showing the impact of, of their faithfulness as it relates to their position in the king's court. Not only did they grow strong in body, they also grew strong in knowledge and wisdom and insight and understanding. The king found that not only were they ten times stronger than the men who ate the royal rations, they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who relied on Babylonian gods. They moved up to places of honor in the royal court, not by submitting to Babylonian ways that conflicted with their faith so that they could get ahead in the world. They moved up to positions of honor because it was God's will to place them there. They ended up exactly where God wanted them to be. And that is exactly what always happens when you know within yourself who you are in God. And stay faithful to that. Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able for our closing hymn. It's in the hymnals at number 714. I know whom I have believed
Are you persuaded that he is able to keep that which you have committed to him? He is our strength and our salvation. Know who you are in him. Go in the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.